The Guardian. Questions to the Prime Minister. Dr. Julian Lewis. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Before I answer my honourable friend's question, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in congratulating the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge their first child. This is the perfect piece of news to end what has been an extraordinary jubilee year. Turning to my honourable friend's question on Afghanistan, the threat to global security from the Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan has been significantly reduced and this is in large part the result of the brave work of UK, ISAF and Afghan armed forces. We remain committed to Afghanistan for the long term and will continue to support the development of the Afghan national security forces after 2014 through continued funding and involvement in training. Our continued contribution to aid and the political process, combined with our armed forces efforts, will underpin a state that is capable of policing its own lands. And it is by this path that Al-Qaeda will, I believe, be unable to re-establish itself in Afghanistan. Dr. Julian Lewis. Mr. Speaker, the Taliban have been told when most of our troops will be leaving, and they need to be told what sanctions to expect if they help al-Qaeda to return. What would those sanctions be, and would an allied regional strategic base serve to make them credible? I think the most important sanction for everyone to bear in mind is the fact that the Afghan National Security Forces are already at a level of 335,000 and are increasingly capable and increasingly able to police and secure their own country. But of course, um, we will continue to be involved, not least through the Officer Training Academy we will establish. The Americans will have a strong relationship, as we will have a strong relationship, with the government of Afghanistan and will obviously want to help them in all the ways that we can to make sure that Afghan never again becomes a haven of international terror. Question two, Seema Malhotra. Question number two, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to duties in my house... In, uh, sorry, in this house... <laughs> To my duties in this house, I shall have further meetings later today. Seema Malhotra. I visited my critically ill constituent, Mrs. Swaran Kormuda, in hospital last week. There were only two nurses on a ward of 30 very ill patients. She has asked me to ask the Prime Minister why he has cut the number of nurses. The number of clinical staff in our NHS since this government came to power has gone up and the number of managers is significantly down. But as my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, said, we are not in the slightest bit complacent. There are parts of our NHS where standards of care and standards of nursing are not acceptable. That is why we're introducing things like the friends and family test to make sure that all hospitals come up to the highest standards of the best. Angie Bray. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, following the publication of the Leveson report last week, does my right honourable friend agree that what we need is a strong, independent regulator, preferably without statutory underpinning? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 
think it is actually a moment when we should try and maximise the amount of consensus that there is in this House and in the country about what is required. I think everyone agrees we need strong, independent regulation along the lines Leveson suggests. Everyone agrees we need million-pound fines. Everyone agrees prominent apologies, independently uh, handled complaints. This is absolutely vital, and I've been encouraged by the meetings I've had with editors of national newspapers that they will put in place uh, that Leveson-compliant regulation. We should continue the cross-party talks and make sure we can deliver a regulatory system of which this House, this country, but above all, the victims can be proud. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, let me join the Prime Minister in congratulating the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge on their very happy news. They have the best wishes not just of this House but of the whole country. Mr Speaker, the Conservative Party manifesto published in April 2010 said, and I quote, we will increase health spending in real terms every year. But the head of the Statistics Authority says clearly and unequivocally that hasn't happened. What's today's excuse, Mr Speaker? This government is putting £12.6 billion extra into the NHS. But let me, let me quote him the figures. Let me quote him the figures directly from the head of the Office of National Statistics, which is that in real terms, spending in 2010 was £104.2 billion in real terms, and in 2011 it was £104.3 billion in real terms. That is a real terms increase, and I can tell him there will be further real terms increases in 2012, in 2013, in 2014, whereas there will be cuts under Labour. Mr Speaker, let me just say to the Prime Minister that even by his standards, that was the most slippery answer you could possibly imagine. He is unbelievable. He is unbelievable. He's come to this House 26 times since he became Prime Minister and boasted about how he's increasing health spending every year of this Parliament. Well, 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 they're cheering, but he's failed to meet the promise, Mr Speaker. Between me and him, we have a ruling from the chair of the independent UK Statistics Authority who says it hasn't happened, and I should be grateful if the Department of Health could clarify the statements made. Look, instead of his usual bluster, why doesn't he just correct the record? It's a very simple point. The spending figures for 2010 were set by the last Labour government. Figures we inherited. All the right honourable gentleman is doing is proving that his government was planning for an NHS cut. We have taken that figure in 2010, we've increased it in 2011, and we will increase it again in every year of this Parliament. Now, people don't have to look at manifestos for a contrast, they can look at what Labour is doing in Wales. The Labour Party is in charge in Wales, and they have cut the NHS in Wales by 8%. As a result, waiting times are up, waiting lists are down, quality is down. That's what you get with Labour in the NHS. Mr Speaker, he knows the reality, which is that he made a promise about every... There's no point in shaking his head and getting annoyed. He made a promise that he would keep the NHS budget rising in real terms in every year of the Parliament. And let me tell him, Labour's plan, Labour's plan that we set out at the election was to increase the health budget in 2010-11, and he cut the budget. He knows the reality. Let me give him one more opportunity, Mr Speaker. He made a solemn promise to the British people for year 
year-on-year increases in their health budget, including in 2010-11, he failed to meet the promise. Come on, why don't you just admit it? to remind the right old gentleman the general election was after the 2010 year had begun. This was Labour's plan. And what we've done is increase it every year. And if he doesn't believe that, perhaps he'd listen to the Labour Health Secretary who gave an interview in the New Statesman when he said this about the Tories. He said they're not ring-fencing it, they're increasing it. He goes on. Cameron's been saying it every week in the Commons. Oh, the Shadow Health Secretary wants to spend less on health than us. Question, which is true, isn't it? He says, yes, it's true. That's my point. There we have it. Confirmed. It's official. Labour want to cut our NHS. It would never be safe with them again. No, Mr Speaker, the reality is, the reality is, he left... The reality is, the reality is... My right honourable friend left a rising health budget and this Prime Minister cut it and that is the reality. Now, let me try him, let me try him on another fact, which I'm sure he'll be able to give to the House. Let me, he, let me try him on another fact. Can he tell us, can he tell us, can he tell us how big an income tax cut he is giving next April to people earning over £1 million a year as a result of the reduction in the top rate of tax? Well, I'm not surprised he wants to get off health because he made... That was, that, was the biggest, that was the biggest own goal I, I think I've ever seen. Right. On the issue of the top rate of tax, when he, his government put the top rate of tax up to 50p, what it actually meant was many fewer millionaires paid that top rate, and as a result, the tax take suffered by £7 billion. And I would remind him that under this government, the top rate of tax will be higher in every year than any year it was when he was working in the Treasury. I'll give him the answer, because of course he didn't give us the answer. I'll give him the answer. Next April, everyone earning over £1 million will have a tax cut of £107,000 a year. £107,000. It's, it's no good the Deputy Prime Minister shouting from a seventh position. He went along with it. He said he went along with it. The, par the party of Lloyd George. Uh, he went along with it. Now, he hasn't kept his promise on all being in it together. Let's ask him about his central promise. Two years ago, he said that by 2015, and I quote, we will have balanced the books. Can he explain why he's so badly failing to keep that promise? the figures on the top rate of tax because it is important. In 2009-10 there were 16,000 people earning more than a million with a tax liability of 13 billion. In 2010-11 when the rate went up this plummeted to 6,000 people with a tax liability of 6.5 billion. So therefore because of his election gambit 50p it cost the country 7 billion pounds. Setting tax rates is about raising money, not about punishing success. That's what they need to, to understand. Now, in terms of the deficit, we have cut the budget deficit by 25%. You'll be getting an update on progress from the Chancellor in the minute. But let me ask him this. How on earth can you deal with a borrowing problem by pledging to borrow more? So let's just be clear. Let's just be clear, Mr Speaker, about his answer. Let's be clear about his answer on 50p. 
the answer, the answer to the problem, the answer to the problem of tax avoidance is to give the people doing it a tax cut. That is the answer he gave. That is the answer he gave. That is the answer. Give them a big giveaway. And the reality, and the reality is, and the reality the Prime Minister couldn't get away from, the deficit is going up, not down, on his watch. We all remember the posters with his airbrushed face saying, I'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. The facts speak for themselves. He's cut the NHS and he's not cutting the deficit. He is 100% wrong. We are increasing spending on the NHS and we are cutting the deficit. Yes. We've cut the deficit by 25%. There are a million more private sector jobs. Businesses are starting up at a higher rate than at any time in our history. This economy is on the right track. We are equipping Britain for the global race. And unlike the party opposite, we're on the side of people who work hard and want to do the right thing. More borrowing, more spending, more of the things that got us into the mess in the first place. Mr. Speaker, three years ago, the NHS, three years ago, the NHS spent £500 million on Tamiflu without having seen all the data on effectiveness or safety. And given that, far from being an isolated case, it is normal for the drugs industry to have almost complete control over the evidence base upon which crucial public decisions are made. Will the Prime Minister ask Roche to make available the full clinical study reports on Tamiflu so that doctors, patients and taxpayers are not misled? Well, my honourable friend does excellent work work on behalf of the taxpayer through all of the very good questions and work that he does. He raises an important issue, not only, as I said, because of the cost to the taxpayer, but also because of possible overstatement of benefits to to patients. There does need to be more transparency in these clinical trials data. We're committed to make sure that happens, and so the European Medicine Agency's work is supported on this, and from next year there'll be a legal requirement to publish summary reports from clinical trials. Lindsay Roy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This week we learned, despite assurances and exhaustive checks that were taking place, that the UK Border Agency made minimal checks to trace 124,000 asylum seekers and migrants with 150 boxes left unopened. Does this not show that the 20% cuts to the Border Agency has put at risk our efforts to secure our borders? Well, first of all, I think actually this is a week to recognise the fact that we said we would cut immigration, and immigration is down, net immigration is down by 25% under this government. I want us to do far better in terms of chasing down illegal overstairs and illegal migrants. Good work is being done there, also involving private sector organisations finding these people and getting them to, to leave. Yes, of course, we had to make reductions in the UK BA budget, as we've had to make across all budgets, but he should have noticed by now that government in these days is about getting more for less. Caroline Dynage. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister will be aware that Portsmouth has been the home of the Royal Navy and a working dockyard for over 500 years. Given that the Business Secretary appears to have prejudged a study into the future of shipbuilding, what reassurance can the Prime Minister give me and 1,500 shipbuilders that Portsmouth will remain integral to the building and export of warships and to the base port of our future surface fleet. Well, the Honourable Lady, right, right, my Honourable Friend, right, quite rightly speaks up for Portsmouth, which is and will continue to be an excellent home for the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy is fully committed to Portsmouth, and whatever decision is taken on the future of shipbuilding, 
The Navy will remain a major employer in the city, not least once the new carriers arrive in Portsmouth in a few years' time. And I'm sure my honourable friend will also welcome the recently announced Enterprise Zone on the Gosport Peninsula. That's a £25 million package that could create up to 1,200 jobs. Margaret Beckett. In June 2010, the Prime Minister said that despite the government's deficit reduction plan, he would ensure that there was, and I quote, no increase in child poverty. Does he still stand by that assurance? We are doing everything we can to tackle child poverty, and child poverty on some aspects has actually come down. The point, the point that we specifically did was that actually we increased the element of the child tax credit that goes to the poorest families. Paul Burstow. Speaker, um, in the wake of the criminal convictions of the staff who repeatedly abused people living at Winterbourne View Hospital, is it not time that those who take the fees, employ the staff and then supervise those staff are themselves held to account with a new offence of corporate neglect? I listen very carefully to the point that my right honourable friend makes. There have been some appalling incidences of completely unacceptable levels of care. And of course, people in those organisations are fully subject to the law as they should be. And if the law has been broken, the proper consequences should follow. Jim Shannon. Mr Speaker, uh, one of the greatest issues uh, for uh, my area and industry in my constituency of of Strangford, and indeed all of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, is the price of electricity. Uh, Can the Prime Minister tell the House what action he is taking to mitigate spiralling costs, especially in Northern Ireland? Obviously, for consumers, we've announced our plans to make sure that companies put people on the lowest available tariff, which I think is warmly welcomed across the House and across the country. In terms of business, where there is an issue with the energy-intensive industries, the government has announced an intention to exempt energy-intensive industries from the cost of contract for differences under the electricity market reform. That is subject to state aid clearance and further consultation, but I think it shows this government is working hard to help those industries and make sure they continue to compete and succeed in Britain. Mrs. Eleanor Lang. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The whole House does indeed join with the Prime Minister in congratulating the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge on their excellent good news. Will the Prime Minister please confirm to the House that the Commonwealth has, at last, after many of us have been asking for this for years, at last agreed to change the rules on royal succession? And will the Prime Minister undertake to bring before the House? a bill very soon so that if this baby is a girl she can follow in the footsteps of her much loved great great grandmother and become our queen I'm very grateful to my honourable friend for her, her, for her question. Um, yeah, I think I can answer positively on all of the points she, she made. At the Perth Commonwealth Conference, I chaired a meeting of the Prime Ministers of all the different realms, and we agreed we should bring forward legislation to deal with this issue. Uh, all of the realms have now agreed to do that. We will be introducing legislation into this House uh, very shortly. It will write down in law what we agreed back in 2011, that if the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's first child is a girl, she can one day be our queen. That is the key point. But I think it is important to explain that the changes will apply to a child born after the date of the Perth announcement last year, even if the birth is before the legislation is passed. I hope it won't take long, certainly not nine months to pass this legislation, but just in case there wouldn't be a problem. Margaret Hodge. Thank you. I welcome the government's commitment to increase its efforts to tackle tax avoidance. Starbucks has now caved in. 
pressure and announced that it will review the tax arrangements in the UK. So clearly, naming and shaming works. Surely it's time to stop companies engaged in tax avoidance from hiding behind taxpayer confidentiality. And will the Prime Minister now commit to publishing the names of those companies found by HMRC to have avoided paying their fair share of tax? Well, first of all, I very much welcome the Right Honourable Lady's uh, initiative on this and what her committee is looking at, and I thank her for the warm words of support she's given to the government for what we've done so far. We have recovered £29 billion of additional revenues from large businesses in the last six years, including £4 billion in the last four years from these transfer pricing uh, inquiries alone, which is one of the issues that's been so covered in detail in the, in the press. I certainly am committed to doing all we can to look at all the options to make sure companies pay their taxes properly and I agree with what she said about public uh, and even some political pressure. On some occasions I myself have made one or two remarks about this that were seen as rather controversial. I think it is important that people feel that they meet their responsibilities and pay their taxes. Buckland. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will my right honourable friend do everything he can to ensure that education, health and social services work together to jointly commission services that will make sure that the much welcome reforms in the Children and Families Bill will be workable on the ground? I I think my honourable friend makes a very important point. We do need to get away from the idea of government or indeed local government operating in silos with different budgets and different departments not working together. I know that representing Swindon as he does, actually Swindon Borough Council has taken huge steps in bringing the agencies together and working particularly in the area of, of, of problem families and I commend them for the work that they do. Whatever announcements the Chancellor makes on pension tax relief in half an hour's time, is it not a fact that when this government came to power its changes to pension tax relief gave a tax cut of £1.6 billion to people earning more than £150,000. I see that the Chancellor has to give the Prime Minister his crib sheet. I'm afraid the Honourable Lady is wrong. We inherited a plan to raise £4 billion from the wealthiest people in terms of their taxes. We raised that £4 billion, and my, my, my right honourable friend will be making some further announcements in a moment. Sir Robert Smith. Mr Speaker, the north-east of Scotland makes a major contribution to the UK economy through the offshore oil and gas industry. Will the Prime Minister commit himself to maximising investment in that industry so that we get the maximum number of jobs, energy security and taxation for the future of this country? My honourable friend quite rightly speaks up uh, for the North Sea industry industry and for everyone who who works in it in in, uh, Scotland. And I've been incredibly impressed when I visited Aberdeen to see the health uh, and the wealth generated by that industry. What we've done on decommissioning and also on new field allowances, I think, has helped to bring uh, some certainty. And we should keep working on that to make sure that we recover as much oil and gas from the North Sea as possible and make the most of this precious national asset. Nick Dakin. Mr Speaker. 7,000 fewer nurses, uh, longer waits in accident and emergency, hospitals, according to Dr Foster, full to bursting. Um, The Prime Minister is cutting the NHS while the deficit rises. Will he put that on his posters for the next general election? I think the Honourable Gentleman was describing the situation in Wales where Labour... 
in place an 8% cut. Let me tell him what is actually happening in the NHS in England. We have actually got, uh, the, we got 1,350 extra clinical staff. We've taken down the number of managers by 6,700. Mixed sex accommodation is right down. The Cancer Drugs Fund is making sure many more people get access to those drugs. Waiting times are down. The number of people waiting a long time is down. The number of people waiting longer than 52 weeks to start treatment is at its lowest level since records began. He should be supporting this government for its health policy and telling his front bench to stop cutting the NHS. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does my right honourable friend recall receiving a visit at number 10 from the pupils of Marketfield Special School, whose school had become nicknamed Shed City, there were so many demountables on their site? Does he share my delight that the Essex County Council has allocated £8.4 million to build a new school? And may I thank him for his support for that campaign? Well, I'm uh, very grateful to my honourable friend for his question. I'm a very big supporter of Britain's special schools. I think they provide an absolutely vital service for, for parents and for children who have those special needs and sometimes quite acute needs. And I'm proud of the fact that this government has actually invested in special schools and they're doing such a good job, including in his constituency. Adrian Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, following the government's new funding formulas for universities this year, Student numbers dropped, or student admissions dropped by over 50,000. My own local university, Wolverhampton, despite meeting its target, suffered a, a cut in its core allocation and has been told that there will be another cut next year. What guarantees can the Prime Minister give that universities such as Wolverhampton will not suffer year-on-year -year reduction in its student numbers as a result of this new formula? The whole point is this government took difficult decisions to make sure we could maintain the numbers of people going to our universities. And really the question, I think, goes right back to the party opposite. If you don't support a proper system of student contributions, how on earth are you going to pay for our universities? We We've set out our plans. They're actually working well. You don't start paying back money till you earn £21,000. You don't start paying back in full till you're paying £35,000. We have a method for making sure we invest in our universities. The party opposite hasn't got a clue. John Glenn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Naomi House's Children's Hospice, which serves my constituency, receives just 10% of its funding from the Department of Health, which is different to adult hospices, which receive rather more. This is especially difficult as they have to pay for all of their prescriptions as private institutions. Will the Prime Minister look again at the reasons for the different treatment of children and adult hospices and meet with me and Professor Aziz to discuss the different funding levels that they're tracked? happy to discuss this issue with my honourable friend. Uh, for many years my family used a children's hospital, children's hospice in Oxford which got absolutely no state support at all. What this government has done is continue with the £10 million uh, pounds annually to support children's hospices. This year we've added an extra £720,000 
£1,000. But what we want to put in place and what we're discussing uh, with the providers of both adult and children's hospices is a system for a per-patient funding system that would be for all hospices and I think would bring a greater logic and consistency for how we support this absolutely essential uh, part of both our health service and, I would argue, our big society. Nassawa. Is the Prime Minister aware that Amazon, a global company, turned over £3.3 billion in the UK this year, paid not a single penny in corporation tax, but at the same time were rewarded with a £10 million grant from the SNP Scottish Government? Doesn't this demonstrate that both our Prime Minister and our First Minister stand up for the wrong people? When will this government move away from punishing the poorest in society and focus on those that avoid and evade? The point I would make to the Honourable Gentleman is actually there's common ground between us, which is that we want these large multinational companies to pay proper taxes here in the UK. Now, we believe that you do that by having low tax rates, and we've reduced the rate of corporation tax, but by making sure they declare their income properly. And that's why on this specific issue of transfer payments, where some companies have been pursuing rather strange practices to pretend that their revenues aren't uh, delivered here in the UK, have run down and their tax bills. And as I said, in the last four years, we've recovered £4 billion in tax revenue in this way, but the Treasury very, and the HMRC very much knows there's more we can do. Dr. Therese Coffey. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Residents of Suffolk Coastal were very excited when the energy bill was published last week, because it now gives a potential green light to the building of Sizewell Sea Nuclear Power Station with many jobs. Will the Prime Minister commit to continuing investing in apprenticeships and skills training that Suffolk people can get the jobs that will be created? I think my honourable friend is absolutely right. The, pass, the, the entry of the energy bill to Parliament now means we can get out there and sell to all of the energy companies the very clear and stable framework that the UK has for offshore wind, for nuclear, for renewables and indeed for, for gas. I think it's a very positive development. There's a huge amount of potential pent-up investment and we need to make sure that that results in British jobs and British apprenticeships and the government is fully committed to making that happen. Included. The Prime Minister obviously believes that within the Leveson report there lurks something which is bonkers. Given that, how would, how would the Prime Minister characterise the views of his planning minister, who has just said that uh, over the coming months and years, tens of thousands of new homes will have to be built on greenfield sites? Yeah. The point I'd make about, let me deal with the planning minister first, I think it is absolutely clear, yes, we should build on brownfield land, yes, we should try and deal with the problem of empty homes, but we do have to have a frank conversation about the need to build more flats and more houses so we don't have the current situation we have, where if you don't have the help from the bank of mum and dad, people are in their mid-thirties before buying their first home or their flat. Now, I don't think that's acceptable in our country, so all credit to the planning minister for trying to fix this problem. On the issue of Leveson, I actually think there's a wide degree of agreement about what a new regulatory system ought to look like. It's set out there in black and white in Leveson. We need to challenge the press to introduce it, and if they don't, obviously we'd have to take further action. With, with more men in work than ever before, with more women in work than ever before, with a deficit cut by 25% and interest rates at historic lows, does my right honourable friend not agree with me that the opposition plan B, code for more debt, would jeopardise all those achievements? Yeah. My, my honourable friend 
is entirely right. We are making progress. Of course it is tough when there are so many economic headwinds against us, but a million more private sector jobs, the deficit down by 25%, a record number of businesses starting up last year. We're on the right track, and it's quite clear. Plan B stands for bankruptcy. That's what Labour would give us. Last but not least, and Cluid. A universal health care system free at the point of delivery is what the overwhelming majority of the British people want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something which I remain firmly committed to. However, there are increasing complaints about nurses who fail to show care and compassion to their patients. What exactly will the Prime Minister do about that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, Honourable Lady um, speaks for the whole House and the whole country in raising this issue, and I know how painful it must have been uh, with what she, she, she's witnessed in her own life and with her own family. Uh, I am, as she is, an, a massive fan of our National Health Service, an enormous fan of the fact that it is free at the point of use, that you don't produce a credit card when you go to hospital, and my own family has had extraordinary care from our NHS, but we don't do our NHS or indeed our nurses any favours if we don't point out there are some very real problems in parts of our health and care systems. As a constituency MP, I see quite a few letters from people, particularly elderly people and their relatives, who are not getting the sort of care that's appropriate in hospitals. I set up a nursing care quality forum that I've attended myself to discuss with nurses uh, and nurse leaders these issues. There is no silver bullet, no magic wand, but some simple steps like asking every hospital to carry out a friends and family test, asking the patients and the staff, would you be happy for your family or your friends to be treated in this hospital, can make a real difference. An hourly rounding, which is not something to do with statistics, but the idea that for elderly patients, the nurse should be there by your bedside once an hour, checking that you've had water, you've had something to eat, you haven't got bed sores, you're properly looked after. We shouldn't have to dictate these things, but I think a proper conversation with our nurses, who are angels by the, by the vast degree can get this sorted out for all our relatives. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.